Bonjour, bienvenue à Monarchast. I'm Claire. I'm Allie. You surprised me again. <laughs> hey, I thought my pronunciation could have been a lot worse. So, you know. When was the last time you took a French lesson? Seventh grade. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> last time I took one was never, so sounds great. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was terrible. If anyone French out there is cringing, sorry. It could have been a lot worse. I could have said bonjour. <laughs> bonjour, bienvenue. <laughs> But as you may have guessed, tonight we're covering Francis I of France. Um, he's going to round out our little bonus episode series here after our Henry VIII series of his contemporaries, those other princes and kings that he tangled with during his lifetime. And he's actually kind of an interesting guy, so I think we'll have a pretty good episode coming up for you. Now, can um, you answer a question for me? Is this supposed to be the Francis that's in Ever After? So it's funny that you ask that. The answer is yes, kind of. So what's weird about that movie is it's obviously, for those of you that don't know, it's one of the best movies ever. Um, yeah, agreed. It's, <laughs> it's a retelling of the Cinderella story, and it does take place in basically renaissance era France and they kind of play fast and loose with the timeline I think because there's a lot of references to Thomas More's utopia um, which is we talked about Thomas More when we talked about Henry VIII and then the prince in the story is Henry and the father's name is Francis now what's interesting about that is that this Francis did have a son named Henry um, but that's about all that you'll see of a similarity because um, you do see Leonardo da Vinci and he does come into our story here but in the movie Henry is very friendly with Leonardo da Vinci and I don't know that Leonardo da Vinci survived into his adulthood and then you also see Francis and his wife have kind of a contentious relationship and they joke that divorce is only something that they do in England and of course Francis and Henry were contemporaries not you know in the movie they kind of joke that it kind of make it seem like Henry and the French Henry in the movie might be contemporary so they kind of play fast and loose with the timelines but yes it's loosely supposed to be based on them although the mother in the story isn't anything like Francis's wife and that's I think it's just supposed to kind of ground you in where we are in history but of course Henry the second who is the son of Francis actually married Catherine de Medici not Cinderella so right but kind of <laughs> yeah I just I was wondering that like I had thought about that literally every time we mentioned Francis because I remember that the king in that movie was named Francis and then his son was Henry and like but the time period seemed to match because it was like da Vinci and then like Henry mentions that they're getting all this chocolate from the monks in Spain which would put it at a time period after they've discovered the new world so although that's a little bit interesting because I think from what we learned in our episode about Ferdinand and Isabella, it probably would have been the Portuguese who were getting most of the chocolate at that time from South America, um, unless the idea is that it was coming from Mexico. So I don't know. But all of that, I was like, this has to be the Francis that they're talking about. So very, just thought very, I'd ask. 
loosely based. But I'm I'm glad you have looked into that. <laughs> I did. I did. I was curious too. That's if you're if you're looking for a fictional portrayal, highly recommend. Now I kind of want to go watch Ever After. <laughs> I guess the answer might be no, but did you have any royal gossip? <laughs> um, no. Okay. I told you, it's been a slow summer. Well, Megan's releasing a cookbook. Is that gossip? I mean, it's interesting to me. <laughs> it is interesting. I think it's a good project. Yeah. I think it's fitting, like, from what we know of her pre-royal life. I think that's very on brand. Yeah. That's all we'll say. I think everyone's still coming back from their summer vacation, so nothing juicy is going on. No. I guess I should ask you, do we have any royal oops? I don't think so. (laughs) I think. Not to my knowledge. We're perfect. (laughs) After our last episode, I think it just comes down to pantyhose. Are they optional? Discuss. We don't know. I say yes. So I still, I'm still not clear, even though we spent a good 45 minutes discussing that, but yeah okay francis 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 so francis the francis we are talking about is the king of france and he was the king of france from 1515 to 1547 and he was a member of the house of valois oh also i'm just throwing this out there i know i maybe come across as a little insecure about my pronunciations but that's because i absolutely butcher these foreign languages this is french so apologies in advance but as you can see from the dates, he was a contemporary of Henry VIII. They were only, I believe, two years apart in age, um, with Francis being a couple years younger. So if you remember from our Henry VIII episode, Francis was a key player that kept popping up. Um, Henry really wanted that French alliance, but they also had that historical rivalry between France and England, so it never really worked out. And as you'll see... From France's perspective, it was more of a, an alliance of convenience than anything else. Um, but much like Henry VIII and Charles V, who we also talked about, Francis is a king who really probably shouldn't have ever succeeded to the throne. Um, I think this is maybe a common theme in this time where you have children dying and not surviving into adulthood and um, women dying in childbirth and a lot of times the babies would die too so I guess maybe it's not that odd but I just took thought it was kind of notable um, he was the third in a line of French kings that weren't father to son Francis is actually the son of Charles de Valois Orléans and he was the Comte d'Angoulême and uh, his I'm mother go with Anjoulime. Anjoulime? Okay. That's probably Angle... well, I, I don't that's know. That's probably I'm more correct. Um and yeah. Louis Louise of Savoy. So as you can see from those titles, neither one of those is king or queen, but he was the third cousin of Louis the Twelfth. Um, Louis had succeeded from his own cousin, Charles, and forgive me, I don't remember the number, but Charles uh, didn't have any male heirs, and 
when he died unexpectedly, Louis took the throne, I believe, at the age of 35. So by the time Francis was born and by the age of four, he's essentially the heir presumptive of France, and that status never changed. Louis XII did have a daughter. He had Claude, but French law actually prevented women from inheriting the French throne. So the crown had to pass to a male heir. Eventually, Francis did inherit the crown. In 1505, actually, Louis was gravely ill and he betrothed Francis to his own daughter, Claude. So not only was Louis XII his cousin, but he was also Francis's father-in-law. Claude was also the heiress of the Duchy of Brittany. And I only throw that out there just because these French duchies I find kind of fascinating in that they... Those can pass to the female line, but not the French crown. So, But we've met Claude before. She's the one whose court Anne Boleyn was a member of, right? Yep, you are correct. So the Boleyns, the Tudors, all of those characters are kind of interwoven in this story. And what we're getting here tonight is kind of the other side of that. So when they got married, Claude was only 15. So... She had a lot of young women around her. And if you remember, she was quite pious. She tried to install um, a very proper atmosphere. And her husband, of course, worked his best (laughs) to (laughs) undo all of that and encourage frivolity and promiscuity. So kind of an interesting marriage. But they did get married in 1514 and Louis died the following year. So... Francis took the throne in 1515 and Claude was his queen consort. And that just kind of helped legitimize his claim to the throne, even though there wasn't any question that he was, in fact, the proper heir. And at the time, he's something of a fresh heir for the French, much like Henry VIII. He was young and handsome and, most importantly, healthy, as the two previous French kings had been old and infirm. If you remember... Henry VIII's own sister, Mary, actually was wed to Louis XII. She was his last wife, and they were only married for three months, I believe. Um, He was trying desperately to sire a male heir. That's why that marriage took place. So again, and her beauty supposedly killed him from his vigorous lovemaking. How unfortunate for him. Yeah. Also, don't murder me, but I was... (laughs) You just made a great joke. He he was something of a breath of fresh air, but you might also say he was a fresh air. No pun intended. <laughs> oh, definitely <laughs> intended for my part. <laughs> so as you can see, this there's a lot of overlap going on in the between the French and English thrones, and we'll also see how Charles is gonna come into the story. But what I wanted to look at tonight is we've talked about Henry, we've talked about Charles. So the question is kind of how does he stack up to them and and what's his side of the tale that we've been telling? So since we did focus on Henry VIII, let's compare him to Henry VIII. Um, oh, he was a lot like Henry VIII. He's known for his intellectual and artistic pursuits. He was credited with encouraging the French Renaissance. This is actually kind of interesting. So from his mother, he gained a really unique appreciation for the Italian Renaissance art that was being generated at the time, and he brought this to France. So he essentially started the French art collection that is now held in the Louvre. 
Um, He also rebuilt the Louvre and turned it into the building that it is today. So it was some kind of medieval fortress. And when he invited all of these Renaissance artists and builders, they really influenced French architecture. You start to see a French Renaissance essentially going on, and that is hands down due to Francis. His yeah, it's really interesting because the Louvre, like everybody thinks of like the pyramid out front, but the building is the, you know, the old timey looking building around the courtyard, like that whole square plaza. That's the actual Louvre. So that's yep. really cool that he brought that in and rebuilt that. Yeah, it is. And his most famous acquisition would be the Mona Lisa. So he invited Leonardo da Vinci to France. Um and sponsored him and he became the royal artist in residence and all of that just um and like he, ever after just like ever after and he brought the mona lisa with him where it has stayed ever since so it's kind of interesting by the time leonardo da vinci made his way to france he was no longer really producing art um i think i read somewhere that he was actually paralyzed in his right arm and he was pretty old at that point but they kind of installed him as a figure in the court, um, you know, a little bit of a collector's item in on his own. And he brought the Mona Lisa with him and it's never left. Um, so that's kind of interesting. And one of the other things that he's known for is he really encouraged a standard French language. So he very much felt that French should be the ultimate language, um, especially in France. He discouraged Latin, which, as you may recall, is sort of known as the language of intellectualism and learning and he said no 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 it's just it's going to be French especially in France and that actually continues today so you were sort of teasing me about my French studies but one of the things that I remember learning about is that the French are very serious about their language and they don't add words to the French language very easily I think there's actually a committee that maintains the um, vocabulary and they really take it very very seriously and I think that you can you can see you can trace this back to Francis and his. and I think it's like even among people like native speakers there's vast disagreements over grammar and pronunciations and you know meanings of words it's like they still have like their language is constantly being evaluated and defined even now yep and that's you know you see that as a tourist if you go to France and you try to butcher their language just well, like they get I very did at the offended. beginning of this episode, they would be very offended. So that's kind of interesting. You can see his influence continuing even to today. And what's interesting is that in the Henry VIII episodes that we did, we talked about Francis as Henry's rival. And we talked about how he was also a young, handsome prince of Europe. And that kind of bothered Henry. But what's a little interesting in all the things that I've read about Francis is that from Francis's perspective, I don't think that he cared that much about Henry. His focus was all about Charles V. So as you may remember in our episode on Charles is that Charles was kind of a problem for Francis. He had all of those vast lands. He was also, remember, young. I don't know that he was considered very handsome, but he was certainly rich and powerful and he had all of those lands and he had France surrounded. So this made Francis extremely nervous. I think I used the term Habsburg sandwich and he spent much of his reign in conflict with Charles. Um, If you'll remember, Francis was so nervous that in fact at one point he 
tried to become the Holy Roman Emperor. That was a very short-lived, failed attempt. But part of that was to offset the power that Charles already had. Francis's whole reign, in part, can be defined by his conflicts with Charles. And from everything I read, it went both ways. Um, In fact, Charles, not once, maybe twice, um, Charles... uh, challenged francis to a duel hmm luckily cooler heads prevailed and they weren't allowed to actually go through with it but that would be an interesting story from history can't have that two, yeah two kings were allowed to duel it out in hand-to-hand combat oh my god could you imagine that story that'd be crazy it's so funny because i think what we learned from henry's story is henry was the center of his universe right but it's yes. really apparent that from charles and francis's perspectives henry was kind of the small potatoes like it was really about mainland europe and like who had the power there like francis was really interested in the fact that charles had become heir to lands that he rightfully thought belonged to him and charles was worried that france was like the other big power on the continent and they're fighting over as we'll talk about Italy and like Henry for them is like this random dude up north who like you know spent all his dad's money so what he has to offer now you know (laughs) I mean and he's related to both of them and he's trying to get involved but I think their concerns were a lot bigger than the island of Great Britain and one of those focuses and we talked a little bit about this with Charles were these Italian wars um and Francis he didn't start these wars he just continued the conflict that he essentially inherited from his predecessors um and as we mentioned last time we talked about Charles this was a series of wars involving the Italian duchies and city-states that lasted for the better part of a hundred years kind of off and on um Francis was very motivated to continue this conflict in Italy because of Charles and Charles had his own significant interest in Italy so not only did the French want to reconquer the Duchy of Milan which is they had a historical interest in but Francis personally was very concerned about Charles expanding his empire because if we recall Charles's goal at the beginning was to consolidate his power and kind of establish a universal monarchy you know he wanted to rule all of Europe essentially and he was he was at the beginning at least it looked like he was well on his way so Francis said nah I've got interests here too. I'm coming. I'm we're going to we're going to rumble. So, here's some highlights from the Italian wars because it's about six or seven skirmishes overall and it could be its own podcast series. But at the beginning, Francis had his one real victory and that's when he captured Milan in 1515. He of course attributed this to his just phenomenal military tactical skill and his general's brain and his talent as a king (laughs) the real story is that it was really set up for success by louis who had left him with an army that was literally ready to go so um really none of that is up to uh, up to francis but francis of course benefited from happy to take the credit of course um, and a short time later, he was actually forced to abandon Milan, but for a time, he'd successfully ex- expanded the French territories into Italy. Um, 
it's around this time that you also see him making several attempts to ally with Henry in England. And most notably, if you remember from the Henry episodes, we talked about the Field of the Cloth of Gold. This is where both sides showed up. Everybody spent a ton of money. They put on this huge display of friendship and friendly competition, but nothing ever really stuck. Um there was some talk of a marriage alliance with Henry's daughter Mary that never really went anywhere um so the reason why Francis showed up to that is he's got these Italian wars going on in the background and he could really use an ally because nobody else was interested in helping out France again you see this come to a head in about 10 years later in 1525 we have the Battle of Pavia and this is the battle where we talked about where Charles actually captured Francis and held him in Madrid so this was a huge loss for the French Um, not only did they lose territories but they also lost their king so Francis was held for over a year um, and it was not a good imprisonment in fact I think at one point he was very close to death And to go free, he had to surrender all claims to Naples and Italy. Um, He had, and the other Italian territories, he had to recognize the independence of Burgundy, which if you remember, one of Charles's titles is he's the Duke of Burgundy. And that had been in dispute ever since Louis' reign. Um, Burgundy felt like, well, Charles as Duke of Burgundy felt like it was not part of France. And Francis as king of France felt like it was most certainly a French territory so this was a big point of contention. He also had to give up any claim to Flanders and the Artois or the Artois. Artois. Um, Artois. That's that's in northern France and then he also had to give over his two sons Francis and Henry essentially as collateral. That was a big deal. Uh, After he's let go he claimed All of this was done under duress and was null and void. Um, In response, Charles held the boys for four years um, in increasingly deplorable conditions. But um, it was kind of useless because they kind of continued on in a stalemate for a few years. Um, The French territories that Francis was supposed to give up refused to go. (laughs) They were like, we'd like to stay French, please. Yes. Yeah, they weren't really interested in being taken over by Charles. So essentially what ended up happening is I think Francis gave up um, some territory and paid him off, basically, with a huge cash bribe. And the boys were let go. And that's how they reached the end of that conflict. But it continued for a while. Um, and then, of course, after the all of that was over, this led to another war. This was the War of the League of Cognac. Um, and this time what's interesting is that the Pope, for the first time, decided to get involved on the side of France. So Pope Clement II, I always want to call him Clementine, <laughs> because I think in one of the episodes I said, like, Clementine. And now every time I see it, I'm like, it's Pope Clementine. Um, he wanted to ally with the French because of his fears that the Holy Roman Empire was expanding too far into Italy. If you remember, we also talked about how Naples Charles took him hostage. <laughs> um, that is, I believe, around this time. Um, but this is the t- this is the conflict that we talked about with Charles, where the Pope initially was very concerned because Naples was only forty miles from the Vatican. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And then he eventually switches sides. And then um, the French were actually forced to go to the Ottomans for help. So put a pin in that. Yep. So this is the one where French, the French went in with a whole bunch of allies, this League of Cognac, and everyone kind of abandoned ship and left the French all on their own to deal with Charles. And so he goes to the Ottomans. And if you remember, the Ottomans are the common enemy of everyone in Europe. They're, you know, not Christians. They're invading. They're threatening the italian front they're threatening um you know in hungary they're invading so kind of a big deal that the french formed this alliance and at first it was just an alliance of convenience but as i said put a pin in that because we will come back to that um finally in these italian wars the last italian conflict fought by francis was in 1542 when he went to war against charles and henry who had teamed up um but again it didn't really work out so he didn't he didn't have very many victories in the Italian wars. He kept trying. It was kind of a mess. Um, but it was kind of true for both sides. You know, I don't think anyone really gained too much ground. It was just kind of this eternal conflict that alliances kept changing. As we mentioned when we talked about with Charles, the popes were on his side, then they weren't. And they just go back and forth. And everybody just exhausted a whole bunch of resources. And I think when we talked about Charles, that's where you see his troops getting fed up because they're not getting paid, they're not getting fed, and that's where you see the sacking of Rome. So, kind of a mess. Yeah. And that that's sort of militarily, the reason why I put that in here is I think when you're talking about military conflicts, it's kind of interesting. From Henry's perspective, he was all about France, right? He wanted to conquer France. Um, and he had the Scots As you to the do north. if you're an English king. That's kind of your hereditary gift is to want, or gift may be the wrong word, but hereditary burden is the need to conquer France. Right. And you've also because got Because let's not forget where the English kings are, de- are derived from at this point is the, the Normans who had conquered England. Right. And then you have the Scots to the north, but they're really not concerned with too much beyond what's on their borders and then you had Charles and if we recall correctly Charles was fighting wars on five different fronts he's fighting the Ottomans he's fighting the French he's he's fighting the Italians at what sometimes he's fighting the English so he's he's very much concerned by just maintaining his power Francis really is just kind of he did have a desire, you know, I think it was his great-grandmother came from Italy and he wanted to reclaim her heritage, but really this is a conflict that he just inherited and continued, kind of like Henry and the French. Um, and I think as we saw on both sides with Henry and with Francis, when your heart's not really in it, it doesn't really work out for you. No. But another way that we can, if we look at the king as conqueror, that we could talk about is the new world. So if you might recall when we talked about Ferdinand and Isabella, the Spanish were busy laying claim to anything not controlled by Portugal. So that was the deal with Portugal, right? They could split up anything new and Portugal was going to lay claim to everything else. Um, But by the time the new world has been discovered, people by this time are, it's, 
pretty clear that there's a lot there for the taking. And Um, there's a lot that the Portuguese were like, eh, we have better options. Exactly. And, you know, indigenous populations be damned. All of Europe wanted in and Francis was no different. So he sent fleets of ships to the Americas and and the Far East to scope out lands. Um, The alliance with the Ottomans came in handy for this. Um, French Mediterranean trade flourished as a result of the alliance. Um, It was mutually beneficial. So Francis was able to focus on sending fleets to the Americas because he wasn't having to battle the Ottomans in the Mediterranean. His ships were free to go as they wanted. So he, he was building a huge trade empire in the Mediterranean, which allowed him to focus on the Americas. Hmm. Um, Going back to this idea of the alliance with the Ottomans, um, France was actually the first country to develop an alliance with the Ottomans, um, which developed into the really long-lasting Franco-Ottoman alliance, as it's known. Um, It's really noticeable because it's the first Christian, non-Christian alliance in Europe. So before this, you see, of course, all of these alliances, it's like allying with like, right? So the Catholics ally with the Catholics, Right, because as we've discussed, especially with the Isabella and Ferdinand episode, is like part of the reason they're at war is because they're viewing each other as infidels, right? Exactly. And you see, even within that, the Catholics, you've got to marry, once Protestantism starts to come around, then the Protestants start to ally with the Protestants, as you see Henry in his later years. Um, Certainly when you see Mary... Um, one of England it's, it goes right back to we got to get a Catholic king you know it's it's really interesting that France and well Francis was able to look at and this is Solomon the Magnificent who we could have covered but I think we're gonna put a pin in the Ottomans and we'll come back to come them back we really them. will we have a plan to discuss them because it, yeah it would be a shame to try to shoehorn them into a single episode yes. We really should do a whole series on the Ottomans because succeeding the Byzantine Empire the way that they did, I think they deserve their own series. But it's kind of interesting because everyone hated the Ottomans. Everyone hated France. So Francis said, hey, I'm going to go be friends with the Ottomans. And it was really beneficial. Of course, the Pope didn't approve. (laughs) But what can you expect? And as a result, um, this really helped the French go into um the americas i just wanted to mention they um settled newfoundland they settled uh part really a lot of canada um they actually visited new york city which is kind of funny because you mean manhattan well at like the time island? they called it they called it new i wrote i forgot to write down what they called it but it was the french aren't calling it new york city no, 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 no. It's it's where current day, present day New York City is. Um, and they called it New something French. And then, of course, New Amsterdam. The, I think the Dutch showed up and yeah, yeah. it was, it's so, been around. But they were I'm, focusing more on the northeast of North America. So I'm forgetting a lot of my timelines. And I'm, as a person who took a lot of courses in college about modern colonial history, I'm a little ashamed of myself, but... Did this lead somehow to the French colonialization being concentrated primarily in North Africa? Yes. So he actually went out and sought out alliances in Morocco. Okay. 
So, because the French... And that goes back to that their, Mediterranean yeah, freedom like their that colonial he had. history was concentrated more like Morocco, Algeria, you know, northern Africa, which would have been more primarily the the realms of the, the Ottomans than say like, you know, South Africa. So I'm just wondering if that this is sort of a precursor to the French coming to view these lands as profitable in a different way yeah and i mean part of that just goes back to this idea of the fact that they were able to move freely about the mediterranean so i mean and i now that i'm talking myself through this i'm realizing a lot of the colonization happened after the fall of the ottomans but it's this is kind of laying the groundwork for it yeah it is he did seek out an alliance with morocco um you know as i just talked about we see the founding of quebec um maybe not the founding, but the exploration and early settlement of French Canada. So you really start to see them putting their own stamp on the world and trying to build a bit of a French empire. Of course, given the time period that we're in, we have to talk about religion. Yes. So given that Francis makes this alliance with the Ottomans, who of course were Muslims. Um, You might think he's a pretty religiously tolerant guy. And the answer is not so much. Um, France, like the rest of Europe, was not immune to the Reformation and the rise of Lutheranism and Protestantism. Um, His own sister, Marguerite de Navarre, was a reformist. She was very, very into the Lutheran ideals. Um, So he, you know, and they were very close. So at first, Francis was pretty tolerant of these ideas. I don't think he really cared that much, just given his personality. He wasn't super religious like Henry. Um, And if you also remember, it's politically useful for him because at first, the first people to really adopt this are the Germans, of course. And if we remember Germany, well, the German territories, those are smack dab in the middle of the Holy Roman Empire. So it only serves to Francis's benefit if this Lutheranism is rising because it's a distraction for Charles and it weakens the Holy Roman Empire from the inside. But, of course, it's not long before Francis is burning heretics like all the rest. Um, The catalyst for this is in 1534. We have what's called the Affair of the Placards. Um, This is an instance where notices are placed all over Paris and large cities in France denouncing the Catholic Mass. So I'm sort of envisioning this as somebody going and like throwing flyers everywhere. Um, Just denouncing the Mass and... Um, the Catholic ceremony, essentially. Um, this really spooked Francis, and he started to see it as a Lutheranism as a plot against the throne. And I think that's because the Protestants were really considered to be Republicans at the time, which makes sense because at the time France had an absolute monarchy. So the throne and the church and an absolute monarchy are symbiotic. You know, the power of the monarch comes from God and being ordained by God of course you have to have the blessing of the church and of course the church maintains their power through this, this is relationship a lot like with the um, crown 
the Spaniards, where Isabella and Ferdinand, part of their justification for the Inquisition was feeling that if their subjects are failing religiously, then that would reflect poorly on them because they, religion and the monarchy are interchangeable. Exactly. It's very, very similar. And I think at first he didn't really care until it's popping up in his literal front yard and he starts to be concerned that if the church can be attacked in this manner, well, then certainly I might be next as the king. So he starts to burn heretics. He starts to persecute Protestants quite zealously to the point where many of them went into exile. Uh, Most notably, you have a man called John Calvin, who may sound familiar as Calvinism was an early offshoot of Lutheranism and it was quite strict and quite severe and John Calvin made his way all over Europe preaching his ideals. Um, In fact, I think the Calvinists were predecessors of the um, Puritans. Am I wrong about that? No, they're, I think they're... um in a similar vein I don't think they're quite the same but yeah pretty strict pretty like the Calvinist faith is like Puritanism I think was I'm gonna talk myself into trouble here but Calvinism was all about like predetermination like predestination right like you're either born going to heaven or you're born going to hell and whatever you do on earth can't really affect that is that right I think that's correct, but I, if I remember also, you're supposed to just live your life very sp- You're supposed to Spartan. live your life, like, like I think the idea is that a lot of people are born evil or sinners, Yeah, right? so you're supposed you're to basically live your life like you're going to hell, so like, like that you're trying to make up for being a sinner or something. I'm, like I said, I'm garbling this, this is really bad, but it's, it was a pretty harsh branch of Christianity. Like, these are the people who like, sat on Sunday and didn't move because to like take any enjoyment on the Sabbath was like a sin. So fun times. Sounds pretty different from the riches and (laughs) of Catholicism. Absolutely. Yeah. And you could view it as like a reaction to Catholicism, you know, like, I mean, if this is a Protestant branch, yes. So, you know, all of this is reactionary to the excesses of the Catholic church. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's all kind of comes to a head. So he uh, he didn't rise to the level of the Spanish Inquisition like Ferdinand and Isabella, but things were bad enough for Protestants that they were getting out of Dodge or out of he Paris, didn't. I but say. I would note that this religious um, tension, I would call it, does not end in Francis's time. France notoriously had years like hundreds of years of tension between catholics and protestants and um it played out pretty visibly with the nobility as well i mean i think there was i forget who it was but there was some noble wedding where there was like a massacre between catholics and protestants so france is going to continue confronting this issue for a long time i wonder how he talked about that with his sister (laughs) Yeah. I think at that time she had been married because she's she was married to the um, Prince of Navarre, King of Navarre. I really should look into this because maybe this would be a good 
candidate for Royal Oops next week because I don't remember what year this massacre was, but it involved members like high up in the French nobility, like related to the ruling royal family. So um, I'll tell you what, I'll do some research and remind myself and then maybe I'll talk about it in Royal Oops next time. Yeah, I think that's a good idea because this is, I mean, this is kind of interesting. You know, the thing about all of these guys is that they all had to deal with this. We've got Henry's, of course, stoking the fire because it helped him get a divorce. We've got Charles, who I don't think personally cared that much. But of course, the German princes are a thorn in his side. And if they're not Catholic, that gives them so much power. I actually have the French. Sorry, I just realized given our recording schedule, I might forget about this before (laughs) we do another recording. So it's the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572. So not long after this. About 30 years, yeah. Yeah, and this involved the Huguenots and Catholics. So it was a targeted group of assassinations and a wave of Catholic mob violence directed against the Huguenots. So... Sounds like a red wedding. Yeah, and this was considered to have been instigated by Catherine de' Medici, so the daughter-in-law of Francis. Who was quite a character. Yeah, because it was the... Wow, okay. So this was... The massacre took place a few days after the wedding day of the king's sister Margaret to the Protestant Henry III of Navarre. So again, dealing with the Navarre family. Um... No, that's, Mini- that's his sister. Yeah. No, well, are you talking about... Well, I Francis's thought- sister Margaret married the King of Navarre. In 1572? No, maybe it was... Maybe Their it was kids. Henry's sister. Mary's well, it was... The- Henry III of Navarre was the future Henry IV of France. Oh, okay. So, so I we're talking assume- a couple generations. Yeah. So many of the most most wealthy and prominent Huguenots had gathered in Paris, which was largely Catholic, to attend the wedding. And then a couple days later, there's a feast for Bartholomew and basically a lot of violence breaks out. So this is what I was thinking of, which is in not a couple hundred years later, as I was remembering, but actually about 30 years after this or 40 years. So like you said, bad times for religion. It's pretty dicey. Yeah. Yeah. And they were all dealing with it. And that's really just the point that I wanted to make was as Henry's dealing with it, as Charles V was dealing with it, as Ferdinand and Isabella are dealing with it on their own terms, you know, France wasn't immune either. And they're all, because all of their power stems from this idea of the majesty and might and power of the Catholic Church. It's a it's a concern. You know, I think Henry VIII had the best approach to it really from the from a monarchy perspective is he's just said oh yeah sure that's fine I actually support that and I am the head of the church (laughs) you know he took it he took it to his to his power to his own benefit whereas you see France and Charles are kind of concerned with the threat to their power but you don't see Francis declaring himself the head of the church in France some people had (laughs) self-restraint yeah well, I think he just, he wasn't also presented with an opportunity. You know, one could argue Henry's position was born of desperation, but kind of an interesting take on, on, uh, in each, each corner there. Um, 
but those are all I just wanted to highlight all of those things because those are the ways you know we talked about a lot of those events in Henry's episodes we talked about some of it with Charles V and I think just looking at those events from Francis's perspective kind of rounds out the story a little bit um and then I think it's also kind of important to look at who Francis was as a person because we talked about Henry we talked about his personality how he was so popular when he was young and how he you know evolved over the years into this tyrant um and it's interesting when you look at their personal life how differently all of these men acted so on one end of the spectrum we have Henry VIII who is what we might call a serial monogamist I think he gets a little bit of a bad rap well, I think he gets a bit of a bad rap I as mean, a guy who's fooling around. But if you think about it, he goes from one relationship to another and he had very few mistresses on the side. But like, okay, I guess technically though, to me, monogamy would imply no mistresses. Sure, <laughs> but, but I suppose it's not... the monogamy of the time. So Yes, and there's not yeah, that many, you fair. know. I mean, he married most of his mistresses. That's true. That's true. So. Only a handful did, escaped the the marriage bed and the chopping block so yeah you know he's he's got always always had a jump off but he 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 landed there and then he married that one and then he just kept going with it <laughs> and then on the other end you have charles who we talked about this a little bit he was completely in love with his wife and remained faithful while she was alive and he's not known to have had any mistresses during his marriage and then you have francis so francis loved women and this you know he he was raised by his mother uh his his father died when he was very young so she was only 20 I think when she had him so he's essentially raised by his mother and he's very close to his sister Margaret um and I think he just really enjoyed the company of women and that what you see is when he gets older this just evolves into him being extremely promiscuous um he before he even married his wife, he was known for his appetite for women. And then they got married and he never pretended to be faithful to her at all. Um, they had seven children, so they definitely did their duty. Um, by all accounts, they really respected each other, but he didn't really have any romantic feelings for her. Um, but that's OK, because in France, certainly more than other countries, it was acceptable for the king to have mistresses in the sense that that he would have an official mistress. It wasn't just that he would have affairs on the side. You know, when Henry had affairs, he was very discreet about it. Not so in France. They are, you know, would install them in court and shower them in jewels and she'd go everywhere with the king. And it was just kind of an accepted practice. So I feel like the French took mistresses to like a higher level. Well, they sort of treated it as, okay, I have my wife and... I can't pick my wife, but I'm going to fall in love. And this is the woman I love. Um, And they weren't, you know, low-born women by any means. Um, They wouldn't be to be considered worthy of the king's time. Um, Francis actually had two official mistresses. And I'm going to butcher these names. So the first was Francis de Troyes. She was his official mistress for several years, really going up until the time that he's captured by Charles and imprisoned in Madrid. Um, I 
interestingly in all the reading I did I I never could clarify whether or not he had children with his mistresses I assume he did only because he had seven children with his wife so So he's pretty fertile yeah he's fertile so I assume he had some but I just didn't really find a lot focusing on whether or not he had any illegitimate children and it may just be that it just wasn't a big deal when he came back from Madrid after his imprisonment he ended things with Francis and installed a new mistress Anne de Pisalu de de Haley oh man Let's um, call her Anne. Anne. Anne de P to H. That's what I'm going to call her. <laughs> I like it. Um, <laughs> she's more, and what's interesting about her is she acted more as a de facto queen than her predecessor. And that's because while he was gone, his wife died. So there was a vacuum and she sort of acted like a queen. And after um, he came back, he was actually married to, I think it was the sister of Charles. But when apparently she showed up in Paris to greet her new husband, he was standing in the palace window with his mistress right next to him. So he didn't care too much about his second wife and they didn't have any children. Um, and then, of course, as we had already previously discussed, he was involved with Mary Tudor. Because remember, this is the court that the Tudor girl, the not Mary Tudor, I'm sorry, Mary Boleyn. This is the court that the Boleyn girls are being brought up in. And Anne claimed to have been very pure and chaste, but this environment... The wife, Claude, is trying to protect all her ladies and Francis is just encouraging this debauched environment. He loved, you know, he's a party prince. He loves women and he surrounds himself with beautiful women. So he was at least involved with Mary Bolin. But it's kind of interesting that even with all of that, you know, he had two official mistresses. He had two wives. Apparently he also was with several women over the course of his life. Um... But it's just a very different approach to what it means to be a king in the romance department. Well, I think that speaks to this idea of like real world marriage versus what they called courtly romance, right? Which was like this false like pretend game of like chivalry and romance that like could be played between two people who had never had any intention of like becoming actually romantically involved. Um, but compared but then to you like, have, you have Francis's idea of courtly romance, which is, I will I get to play the chivalrous knight and we'll also sleep together. Yeah, exactly. So, I think it just depends on, you know. I think this goes back to the idea that Henry VIII was very religious. I think you know, at the end of the day, he was a man. Um, you know, what is it? Chris Rock says a man is only as faithful as his opportunities. Um, mm. But I think. Henry certainly at least tried to respect his marriage vows. Um, I don't think Francis cared. <laughs> I just don't think he did. But interestingly, um, all of that getting around um, did catch up with him. He's rumored to have died of syphilis. Now, I think it's pretty established that he did in fact have syphilis. Um And the reason why is because his doctors were dosing him 
with high doses of mercury, which is how they treated syphilis. And actually in my reading, I wanted to come back to your your point that you brought up a couple weeks ago about how they think syphilis maybe have may have originated in the North America. Um, that apparently is not so. So it's, there's actually it's it's, um, un, it's unconfirmed. There's like for a long time it was considered to be a European disease, but that there's new evidence that points to it being a disease of the Americas. But it's also likely that the Americas just introduced a different strain of a similar disease that already existed in Europe. So, so I don't want to get no too way to much know. I mean, they're not going to be able to trace back like patient zero, you know. Well, I don't want to get too much into it, but what I did read is, and it was relative to Francis, is that they have exhumed bodies, or I should say skeletons, from pre-discovery of America that have signs of syphilis. Um, It was a disease that was well known at the time. What's interesting about it is that around the time the Americas were discovered and Christopher Columbus and his men came back from the New World, there was an epidemic of mm-hmm. syphilis. But this is more likely due to all of these wars that are going on. Uh, the Italian wars, the Ottoman yeah. wars, the, um, you know, all these military campaigns. You have women following the campaign. People right, I think are the thing spreading about syphilis disease. Is- that makes it difficult as everybody said it came from somewhere else, right? Like it's called the oh, French disease. It's called the Neapolitan disease. It's called, you know, who knows what else. Like it's, I mean. Well, humans, I'm not trying to get into a history of yeah, syphilis yeah. here. What I'm really trying to get to is the fact that this was well established at yeah. the time that Francis is said to have caught it. So it, it's probably true that he had it. Whether or not he died from it. It's not really clear. But what I do find interesting is that um, they were dosing him with high levels of mercury. And what's interesting is that after his imprisonment in Madrid, um, his health was never really the same. He suffered a head injury while he was there and afterwards would have wild temper swings. And he wasn't often interested in what was going on in his kingdom. In fact, his mother would step in for him to make decisions if he was unavailable. So that's kind of an interesting parallel with Henry VIII. Um, if you remember, he had a head injury that they say may have changed his temper. But then I also wonder as I'm reading all of this, well, if he's got syphilis and they're dosing him with these extremely high levels of mercury, he probably Could it had be mercury, mercury poisoning. poisoning. Yeah. Yeah. So in any case, his health really deteriorated over the years and he died on March 31st, 1547, only a couple months after Henry VIII. Um, not a great way to go. However, he died, it doesn't sound great. Um, If he died of syphilis, I'm sure it was awful. If he died of some horrible fever or illness, I'm sure it was also awful. But he died at the age of um, 52. Well, uh, that's that's pretty advanced age for the time. It was, you know, it's true. And I think given the fact that he went on military campaigns, and it wasn't like Henry when Henry goes on campaign and stays back, he, I mean, he led his troops into battle, at least on the first campaign, um, which is why he thought he was such a phenomenal general, you know, for getting captured by Charles, for being imprisoned, um, surviving several illnesses. The fact that he made it to 52 is 
kind of amazing. But I think it's interesting. I think he's often compared to Henry VIII because they had so many parallels in their lives. They died at similar ages. They died at the same year. But I think when you look at Francis's biography, you can't discount the influence of Charles V, who was also hanging out there. And the way that those men all kind of influenced each other is, is really, really, really interesting. It's just a really interesting time in European royal history, which is what we're here to talk about. So yeah, um, I think this is good that we covered Francis. Uh, you know, like I said, we could have done a whole series on him alone, but what I really hope that we accomplished tonight is just kind of hitting the highlights and showing how he fits into this puzzle that we've kind of been building over the last few weeks. Yeah, we've got this trifecta of, well, kings who are pretty well known in history, you know, coming into a new age, kind of straddling this transition from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance. And it's a really interesting time to rule in Europe. Which one do you think comes out on top? I think it's, that's a hard question, only because they all had so many things going on. I don't think Charles V comes out on top. No, um, we you talked seem, about the fact he kind of ended in a crash. He also and burn. seemed like kind of a bad ruler. I, I think that's a hard judgment to make because how can you? You can't. He had too much to rule. Well, that's what I mean. Like he was too overextended, but like he never successfully really did anything. Yeah, I mean, he abdicated and went to yeah. a monastery. So um, he gets ranked bottom. <laughs> I mean, I think honestly. I think I'm going to have to go with Henry VIII, and here's why. Francis, I don't think you can judge them really on military campaigns in either of them. Francis... I don't think either of them were super successful militarily. No, Francis is spending all his time in Italy and failing spectacularly, and Henry is trying to conquer France and failing spectacularly. Um, But the reason that I'm going to say Henry is, despite his you know, quest to start a dynasty really did help cement the Tudor dynasty on the throne of England. Um, You know, if you look at what his father was going through and trying to, he spent his whole throne kind of making the argument for his own legitimacy. I think Henry, Henry really cemented the legitimacy of the Tudors. Um, But he also opens the door for religious disputes yeah, but I, that's the other thing is I, I don't think that you can discount whether you agree with him or not. He completely reformed the religion of an entire country. I would say it's true that if we look at the impact that both of these men have on their countries and the sustained impact that they had, Henry wins by far. I mean, we're talking about the impact of Henry VIII all the way up into, you know, um, well, like modern day um before you know before they sort of decided that it was cool if you're catholic like you know up until modern the modern era these english rulers aren't allowed to marry catholics and that's a direct response from a direct result of henry the eighth so um the fact that the ruler of england is the head of the church of england that's a legacy of henry the eighth so um you know francis you talked about he still has perhaps a legacy with the french language but um, in terms well, and of people are you know, still in line at the Louvre, probably you know. Yeah, but speak. But also, it's hard to judge because France doesn't have a monarchy anymore. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess I vote it's, Henry VIII as well. 
Well, that's convenient since this all started with him. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Full circle. All right. So we are going to pause for another break, I believe. Yeah, I think we're going to take a few weeks at least just to take a step back and kind of redirect. Um, I know that we are probably hoping to take advantage of some of these movies that are coming out. So I Mm -hmm. think we might do Queen Anne because we've got the movie The Favorite coming out and we'd like to talk about her. Yeah, we've mentioned her briefly in the run-up to um, George the First, but she was only briefly mentioned. So we're going to give her her due. And we're going to continue the tutors with Elizabeth. And we're probably going to do Mary, Queen of Scots, and Elizabeth the First. Yeah, so we're not going to cover all of Elizabeth's reign. I mean, that's a whole series in itself. But we'll do the era where she's battling with her cousin. Yeah, because there is a movie coming out for that. So that'll be interesting to cover. So we'll do a few Queens of England and try to focus on the women for a while. Yeah, and then I think after that, we're interested in maybe exploring other countries. So again, if anybody has any ideas, we're certainly open to it. If you'd like to hear more about the French rulers, we could do that. There's certainly a lot to cover there. Mm. Um, we could do the Italians, since we've yeah. sort of moved personally, over there with the Italian wars. We have the Ottomans, of course, Yeah, to I was going to say, personally, I'm excited to dive into the Ottomans as well, so... That might be a next year project, though, because that's going to require a lot of research. Yeah, there's certainly a lot to cover there. So the good thing about doing this podcast is that there is a wealth of material out there and subjects. I don't know if we'll ever run out of monarchs to cover. No, a lot Um, of civilizations have discovered monarchy. So we have a treasure trove of figures throughout history to dive into. I mean... We could go talk about the pharaohs. We could talk about Chinese dynasties. We could talk about, you know, um, ancient rulers of the Indian continent. I mean, there's just a never-ending source. We could talk about the czars in Russia. I mean, you name an area of the world, there's a history of monarchy that we could probably cover. So, But we hope you're enjoying this. And, of course, um, check us out on Instagram and Twitter and maybe when we come back we'll have an email address (laughs) maybe (laughs) i feel like everyone's feeling very teased with that um but for those of you who are feeling teased by that (laughs) all of our 15 instagram followers we appreciate you um if If you want an email let us know (laughs) (laughs) yeah and we appreciate everybody tuning in it's really fun to talk about this stuff and it's nice that there's people out there that are listening so keep it up and yeah. as always review us on itunes or google play or google podcast yeah. we we welcome it anywhere we love reviews we love criticism even if it's not positive if you hate the way we talk if you have questions or concerns or comments we we'll just welcome it all feedback is good so until next time uh how do you say goodbye in french <laughs> au revoir i yeah, think what she said what she said yep, yep. <laughs> Monarchast is produced by me, Allie, and me, Claire, and our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.